Welcome to Still Scared, Talking Children's Horror, a podcast about creepy, spooky and disturbing children's books, films and TV. I'm Ren Wednesday, my co-host is Adam Wybray, and today we're talking about the 1974 novel House of Stairs by William Sleater. A full transcript of this episode will be available, so check the show notes for that. Enjoy! So uh, we teased this uh, a fair bit in the last episode. Um, uh, this is House of Stairs by William Sleater, um, the second in our William Sleater exploration. I don't know if we're going to do any more. but uh, Not not for now, maybe sometime in the future. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'll give a little, um, a little description of um, the plot. Please do. Um, the summary is five 16-year-old orphans of wildly varying personality characteristics are involuntarily placed in a house of endless stairs as subjects for a psychological experiment on conditioned human response. That's essentially the plot. Um, so they're in this mysterious building that's made up entirely of blank white staircases. Uh, the only feature is a sort of mysterious machine that flashes and produces food when they perform certain action um, and uh, the actions that it demands become increasingly complex uh, until the machine requires that they turn on each other to receive food. Two of the group end up rebelling and decide to starve themselves rather than participate in this um, but the other three become increasingly inhumane and vindictive as they are thoroughly conditioned by the machine. Um, and then at the end it's revealed that they're part of this psychological experiment to produce a elite and ultra-obedient group of teenagers to do the government's dirty work, essentially. Yeah. Um, should I just introduce our characters as well? Sure, yeah. So the Peter is the first character we meet, and he's kind of... Uh, dreamy and gentle and sort of seems quite weak but then he's the one who turns out uh, to actually incite the sort of rebellion against the machine. Um, Lola is kind of confident and aggressive and she's most convinced of the sinister nature of where they are from the beginning and she joins Peter in rebelling. Um, Blossom is uh, greedy and manipulative and uh, set against Lola from the beginning and she she's from an upper class background. Uh, Abigail is meek, elegant, easily manipulated, uh, in thrall of Oliver. And Oliver is a confident, charming, wants leadership of the group, uh, prone to manipulation and aggression when aggrieved. Uh, they're all 16 and they're all orphans. So do you want did you want to um, 
explain a little bit about the uh, classical conditioning that sort of is a central theme of the book? So, as you said, all of the characters are enthralled to this machine which produces food pellets. Um, and the book is basically William Sleater's response to B.F. Skinner's book Beyond Freedom and Dignity, which is a, an amazingly sinister name for a scientific treatise, uh, which was published in 1971 and uh, explained Skinner's theories of classical conditioning. So most of you will probably be familiar with Pavlov and his dogs. Mm. Um, the classical conditioning basically works through uh, associated stimuli, creating... Uh, well, so for instance, for Pavlov's dogs, um, Pavlov found, supposedly, that his dogs would salivate um, at the uh, the smell of food, so their freshly cooked food, uh, and then he would ring a bell to coincide with the um, preparation and the, the giving of this food, and then found that eventually he could ring the bell and the dogs would salivate at the sound of the bell because they had learnt to associate the sound of the bell with the arrival of the food. Um, mm. And this is called classical conditioning, so it's using positive or negative stimuli um, in order to reinforce behaviour, essentially. Um, and this is the kind of conditioning that's used by the machine. So basically, at its most simple, um, the kids get fed when they do what the machine wants them to do. Um, and they have to sort of intuit what the machine wants, uh, sort of by trial and error. Um, and also, I don't know, they start to get a kind of rhythmic feel for it. So they, they, they have to, at first, do quite a simple dance. And as you said, this, this dance kind of increases in complexity until it becomes quite highly ritualised. Mm. Um, and then eventually this is kind of replaced by um, an implied injunction uh, to be violent and cruel towards each other. And as you said, two of them resist and the other three go along with it. Yeah, there's quite a detailed description of the dance um, in all its uh, complexity. Um, I don't know if we should read a little bit of it to um to show sort of what they're doing sure do you do you have it excerpted yeah yeah so i think i've got the page here um so okay at this particular moment their dance went like this Lola and blossom opposite one another circled slowly around the hole in the landing their arms were extended above their heads, swaying from side to side, hands outstretched. As each one reached the point nearest the edge, she would spin around quickly, timing it so that the spin occurred at every other flash of light, and at the moment of spinning, each would raise her head and emit a high-pitched wail. At the same time, Peter and Abigail, timing their movements precisely to the flashing light, performed a complex series of movements on two adjacent stairways, bowing to the landing, rising to their toes and waiting for a flash with their hands on their hips and their chins lifted, turning, lifting a leg behind and bending to touch a stair above with both hands, waiting for a flash, turning, moving quickly down to the landing to meet Oliver, 
waiting for a flash, then back up on the steps, where the pattern would begin again. And Oliver, Oliver in the centre of it all, moved alone. He would begin between their two stairways, stretching, his back arched, then suddenly leap, landing on a flash of light and just missing Lola as she passed, landing with one foot in the air and spinning around instantly, to begin a swaying, hip-moving walk, his arms held before him, his hands and wrists twining and intertwining, his head bending towards one shoulder and then the other as he moved towards the stairs, there to meet, one every other time, Abigail on Peter. It was always Abigail the first time. He would reach her, grasp her about the waist, and with her body arched she would fall backwards, her hands brushing the floor, until the right moment. Oliver would pull her up to him, and he would step away to begin again. At the next repetition it would be Peter. And um, instead of Pavlov's bell kind of preceding um, the dance comes a kind of auditory announcement or alarm, um, mm. And what I thought was a nice touch, or an interesting touch, is that each of the characters hear it differently. So they each interpret the voice that they hear, this alarm, as saying something different. So yeah. can I read, read out the different interpretations? Oh yeah, go for it. So, I know, Blossom cried, they're saying food will be coming soon. Food will be coming soon. Listen, can't you hear it? Her eyes were darting wildly, and she clasped her hands together. Oh, I hope they're right. I hope they're telling the truth. It's been so long since we've had any food. Shh, said Lola, waving her hand at Blossom. I'm just getting it. And you're wrong, she went on suddenly. That's not what they're saying at all. They're saying nude in the house of the doomed. It's obvious. But why would they say that? Blossom cried shrilly. It's meaningless. She spun around to Peter. You can hear it too. They're saying food will be coming soon. Aren't they? Aren't they? Peter shook his head. It, 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 it sounds like be careful in Oliver's room. What? cried Blossom. But you're both wrong. They're saying, they're saying nude in the house of the doomed. Lola insisted. Because that's what we are. We're helpless in this crazy place. Or at least they want us to think we're helpless. You just think it's food because that's all you ever think about. Stop saying things like that, Blossom shouted, stamping her foot. Stop being mean to me. Just remember, you said a couple of things this morning that I could always tell a few certain... What? Lola stepped towards her. What the hell are you talking about, you? She was interrupted by voices from above and hurrying footsteps. It isn't, Oliver was saying. Can't you hear them? They're saying she gobbled him up in the womb. No, it's the dish ran away with the spoon, said Abigail, sounding out of breath. It really is, Oliver. <laughs> uh, of course, the correct interpretation is she gobbled him up in the womb. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I think so, you enjoyed that. Yeah, so the scientist, the head scientist at the end of the book, so there are uh, a bit of a reveal. There are evil scientists behind this. Um, and the lead scientist reveals that it was just a string of nonsense gobbledygook. And mm. so the idea is that there's so little kind of visual or auditory stimuli around them. Everything's so blank and so white that uh, basically um, they'll kind of latch on to any possible uh, stimulus <laughs> that comes out and, and uh, kind of interpret it 
or project all their emotions onto it willy-nilly. Um, yeah. So, so most of these kind of make sense. So, obviously, uh, Blossom very much is characterised as always wanting food. And so, yeah, of course, Lola's right that she thinks its food will be coming soon because she's always thinking about food. Uh, Lola has this very pessimistic um, reading of the situation. So that's why she thinks it's nude in the House of the Doomed. Um, Peter, meanwhile, um, becomes kind of fixated on on Oliver and yes but oliver's um definitely less charming than than he at first appears <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely uh so yeah that subtext i guess is be careful in oliver's room mm. um however i mean <laughs> the dish ran away with the spoon i guess abigail is kind of sort of a bit head in the clouds, maybe. Yeah, I think. I or think dreamy. She's a bit. Yeah, I think that that's sort of what I got from it. That she's just sort of a little bit, um, a little bit of a dreamer. What about she gobbled him up in the womb? <laughs> well, I have no idea about that. I've got no, no, same here. I've got no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's great, but. <laughs> Who knows? Um, I mean, it, de- it definitely shows the dark depths to Oliver's personality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're all wrong. Of course it's that. It's logical. <laughs> what else would it be? <laughs> it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um. Personally, it's my catchphrase. <laughs> yeah. So should we focus a bit on... Uh, Oliver and Blossom, because they're definitely the central, well, really, to be fair, the adult scientists are the central antagonists, since they're Mm. the one who have devised this awful manipulative experiment. (laughs) Um, But for the purposes of of plot, um, ostensibly, Mm. Oliver and Blossom are the antagonists. So, should we start with Oliver? Yeah. Um, So... Oliver very much comes into the situation sort of wanting to take up the leadership role. Um, he, When he first appears, he's sort of Lola's off doing something. Oh, she's trying to find a, a toilet, which she does. But um, Oliver appears and he starts sort of doing a little song and dance and getting everyone laughing. Um, yeah, and it's very actually it's a very strange song and dance. Um, <laughs> Oliver's tendency towards kind of troubling gobbledygook starts quite early uh, because yeah, I, I've written I've written down his song. Oh, oh good, good. <laughs> which goes I don't quite know the tune, but um, happy little sunshine, baby boo, gurgly goo, boopity boo, strange flowers growing in my garden of love. <laughs> My garden of love, love, love. <laughs> Cue electric guitar. I don't. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't. I don't know if I'd be merrily laughing along if someone was singing that. Yeah, they're you, all but... they're all really into it. They're all like, oh, brilliant, James. I love it, Oliver. Great stuff. <laughs> You're the leader for us. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, like Lola Lola gets back and she's she's unhappy that they're having fun. Um well she thinks they should be taking this a lot more seriously. And um 
and it sort of starts this rivalry between Oliver and Lola where um he's he's very used to being able to charm girls um and uh, Lola's immune to his charm so um he's quite uncomfortable about that um whereas Abigail is uh, sort of entirely under his spell from the, the moment they meet yeah, I've just been watching, uh, perhaps against uh, my better judgment, Always Sunny in Philadelphia with my sister. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if you... Have you seen much I haven't of it? seen it. So, I mean, it's basically like Seinfeld, but the characters are all wholly, horribly reprehensible human beings. Mm-hmm. And Oliver is very... strikes me as very similar, a young version of the character of Dennis um, in Always Sunny, who is basically a sociopath and Mm. uh, likes to charm women uh, just so he can get the sense of power over them. Um, Mm -hmm. But we just watched an episode where, to get revenge on one of his friends, he basically tries to sleep with his various friends' mothers, and none of them are attracted to him. Mm -hmm. Um, And over the course of the episode, he becomes more and more distressed by this, and the the idea that these older women don't want to sleep with him Mm -hmm. um, is so outside of his comprehension and his (laughs) self-image that his his sort of ego crumbles over the course of the episode until he's basically having a full-on existential crisis. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, yeah, you, you get the sense that Oliver is just not prepared for a girl of his age to not find him attractive and yeah. it's just completely <laughs> thrown by this. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and he also has um has Peter very much in his thrall. Um because uh well I guess we'll we'll talk more about this, but he he reminds Peter of a boy who he used to I don't I don't idolise and he used to he used to protect him in uh, one of the state homes he used to live in. Um, So there's also this kind of... I don't know, it's not sexual, but sort of romantic undertones of how the relationship between Peter and Oliver, although Oliver only only wants power, really. Yes, I mean, I think Oliver kind of becomes Peter's attachment figure, basically. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it it feels like it's romantic on Peter's part. Um, mm. He certainly talks about love, um, mm. but he's also characterised as very kind of innocent and naive compared to the other characters, and mm. so it's not necessarily sexualised. Mm. Um, but as we said in Interstellar Pig, that despite the fact that these are you know mid to older teenagers. Um, generally speaking, sex is not particularly to the fore in Sleater, to be honest. Yeah, and it's it's sort of kind of um, suggested that this is a function of um, the the world that they live in, where they're all in very strictly sex segregated um, state homes, um, where it's uh, been taught that. I don't men and women can't have anything to do with each other um or that anything they do have to do with each other is inherently sexual I think yes yeah, I, I like that the correlative of this is that it also devalues platonic male female mm. friendships of course mm. so by the end Peter and Lola um even though 
the suggestion, implicitly at least, might be that they're of queer sexualities, perhaps. So yeah. it's, it's understated, but that's mm. the impression you get, but have formed a friendship and yeah. are shown holding hands at the end as friends. And I, I liked I liked this idea of the kind of platonic friendship as an act of resistance against this regime. Yeah. I thought it was quite interesting. Um, and not something you see that much of in modern young adult dystopian fiction, which the mm. relationships are perhaps more uh, romantic. Mm. Um, but anyway, so Oliver's one of the antagonists. Uh, the other one <laughs> is Blossom, and William Sleater doesn't like Blossom. Yes, he emphatically doesn't like Blossom, or I think it's fair to say fat people in general. Yeah, and we kind of touched on this briefly it doesn't really come up particularly in interstellar pig mm. um there's perhaps a certain idolization of thin people yeah. but uh there isn't much about fat people but uh there certainly is here oh yes did you um, did you keep a tally oh yeah i i did um yeah so well, I, there's always too much too much to mention, really. Sort of every time Blossom is, every time Blossom comes up, someone's talking about how fat she is in one way or another. Um, either just literally calling her fat, or the sort of descriptions of her whenever she whenever she's in in the scene. Um, but for example, when we first meet her. Um, her features seemed small, lost in mounds of pink flesh, and her body jiggled underneath the white ruffles of her dress as she pressed herself backwards against a flight of steps. Um, there's there's lots of descriptions like that um, about... Well, see, I was thinking about this. I just think that Blossom... There's just a lot more descriptions of Blossom's body than of anyone else's body. Oh, by a long way. Like, it seems almost... Like the narrative is kind of fixated on Blossom's body, yeah. Um, it's very odd, and 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 kind of linking Blossom's body with abjection, right? Which I guess oh, yeah. you know isn't a new thing uh, in terms of fat shaming, um, but it is very overstated, right? So um, there's an emphasis on Blossom's dress being dirty, mm -hmm. and you know presumably, you know there 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 are no showers here, and. Yeah, it, it, you know it's all very sweaty and such. So you, you know, presumably all of their clothes are dirty, but we don't really get descriptions of the rest of their clothes. However, yes. Blossom's dress, which starts out white, ends up you know being described as you know sort of you know sweat marked and filthy and, yeah, and it's ragged. Her filthy dress hanging on her like a shroud. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um. I see, it sort of goes beyond being offensive to being kind of concerning. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, yeah, there's just it's just relentless, um, and sort of to to the extent that even when Lola and Peter are like starving to death and they're just sort of sitting, kind of motionless, like trying to conserve as much energy as possible you know? and like the others sort of sneak up on them and like Lola sort of taps Peter on the shoulder and is like 
<laughs> and like says something about how oh it didn't take long for Blossom to get fat again. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're clinging on to their life, literally yeah. at death's door, and they're like must insult Blossom's weight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I was um I was reading sort of stuff that um. Uh, Kiva Bay on Twitter sort of writes a lot about uh, fat studies and things and he's been talking about um, the, the horror of corporeality and how that's specifically there in um, in our reaction to fatness. Like, if we're thin enough, we can pretend that we don't have fallible human bodies that get sick and betray us and fat people are like an affront to that sense of immortality kind of thing. Um, and I think the Blossom is sort of getting quite a lot of that in this book. Um, yeah, it's hard because, you know, it's tricky. And I guess perhaps especially when we're talking about a gay author, so Sleeter's mm. gay, uh, or was, he's dead now. Um, you, you know, I don't feel wholly comfortable getting into kind of psychoanalyzing him. Mm-hmm. Um but to a certain extent, there does seem to be a certain discomfort with talking about sexuality, right, in Sleater's books. Mm. Uh, this is something Adam Kadri's sort of mentioned in his sort of survey of essentially all of Sleater's fiction. It's something I've noticed that, um, and yeah, it's young adult fiction, but there are times, so, so for instance, there's um, a lot of kissing um, between uh, Oliver and Abigail, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it's very odd because Oliver is written as though he has kind of sexual desires and as though he might be, um, you know, quite a predatory figure, basically. Mm. Uh, yet there's never any indication that he even thinks of pushing this further than kissing at all. Mm. That, that that sexuality beyond kissing doesn't really seem to exist in this world. Yeah, and what even you know when they're when it's Blossom, Abigail, and Oliver, and they they've fallen into this routine of tormenting each other to receive food. There's there's never any uh, sexual element to that at all. No, there's never any kind of sexual threat, which. Yeah. I can understand, you know, it's a young well, adult book, is, I, you yeah. know, I'm not saying it shouldn't necessarily be there, and it might just be that it would be there in something like uh, The Hunger Games, right? Yeah. That that perhaps I'm more used to modern young adult dystopian fiction, which probably would bring that in. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I don't know, there is something there, I think, about Slita being not wholly comfortable with, with talking about sexuality in the body and it does feel like yeah there's a lot of kind of displacement <laughs> onto the, the the figure of blossom basically um yeah she just she just is a lot more her physicality is just mentioned a lot more than any other character or uh, a, a lot of focus on her tongue as well um yeah. and not not necessarily sexualizing that but there is a lot of descriptions of blossom's tongue and what her tongue looks like <laughs> Yeah, 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 um, yeah. It's not just um, it's not just her fat. It's sort of all of her. <laughs> um, 
gets yeah gets and, quite and des- a lot of des- scrutiny um, yeah and described in a much more sensory way i think than the mm. rest of the book um so yeah it's so it's a you know it's a real shame because uh, otherwise i think it's a pretty great piece of dystopian fiction um but i have to say that you know if you, you, if you would be triggered um by kind of demonization of fatness then you shouldn't be reading it or i i'd seriously advise against it cuz i think it would be really anger inducing frankly yeah yeah um and there's also the the very uh the sort of very kind of basic simplistic thing going on with blossom that her fatness is sort of representing the excesses of the corrupt government um because uh and her parents unlike the other characters her parents only died very recently until then she was sort of part of the elite the upper class and had the luxuries associated with that like she's she's had real meat and she lived in an actual house and that sort of thing so i mean (laughs) yeah um... i think it's not particularly clever (laughs) no it doesn't feel like a kind of rigorous engagement with the class system (laughs) of this dystopia (laughs) (laughs) yeah um Um, so so i mean the dystopia is sort of always gestured towards right we never Mm -hmm. get a full sense of what life is like outside of this facility um well we get a few descriptions so as you just mentioned blossom lived in an actual house um Mm -hmm. or at least a a house where one's family can live um whereas everyone else seems to live in some kind of collectivist tenement housing yes residential mega structures um Um, Um, like in a sort of jg ballad dystopia i mm -hmm. guess um yeah so i do i did like how you get just hints of the hints of the dystopia i think that was done pretty well um so uh, Peter says his father died in the war and uh, Lola replies same as everybody else um, <laughs> so there's been a war um, people lots of orphans um, yeah they're not unusual in being orphans I think um, they're um, yeah they're, they're in like strictly segregated sex segregated state institutions um, that have uh a lot of um, surveillance, I think, we get the impression. Yeah, you certainly get the impression that the government doesn't have any qualms about human or civil rights. Mm. Um, um, and and has a lot of power. <laughs> yeah. Um, something called electric eyes, uh, I've mentioned in passing. I, yeah. think, I think it's quite a good way of, in a way, doing a dystopia, so focusing mm. on this kind of micro-environment and then gesturing towards the rest of it, because it kind of means you don't get... I mean, some people really like extensive world-building. Mm. Um, if I'm honest, it's something that, you know, I, I struggled, for instance, reading June, because so mm. much of it was just world-building, and I, I, I struggle after a while, to be honest. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know... Uh, I think you, you, you definitely understand what kind of dystopia this is without mm. it going into great detail. Yeah, I think it's I think it's good. Um, I like that about it. Um, it's uh, 
it's interesting how you how you pick it up as it goes along and oh yeah the cars have uh, have gas masks because uh, the the air near the highway is unbreathable yeah, I didn't pick that bit up <laughs> yeah because Lola um this Lola's quite a rebel um she stole a car and um and then crashed it <laughs> 16 years old and already uh-huh. stealing cars <laughs> and um, and then um, she had to sort of she was sort of trying to flag down help on the side of the highway but she had to keep going back to the car to get breaths of breathable air uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah <laughs> um. and there are, there are times where it also seems like the facility Sounds like a reality TV show, which is odd because obviously this was written um, mm. <laughs> a couple of decades before reality TV shows really existed. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, yeah, definitely. Um, I actually, um, I saw it. Kept reminding me of this. Um, I don't know psychological TV experiment thing I saw, where um, where they had uh, just a group of people in a room and um and there was a counter like sort of fixed on the wall that was that was kind of ticking forward sometimes and it sort of the people in the room got increasingly um preoccupied with trying to work out what they were doing that was making this counter tick forwards or not and like <laughs> in the and in the end it was revealed that it was just um uh, it was just ticking forward based on whether a, a goldfish in a tank in another room had swum to the other end of the tank or not. But, um, but they, became... they they read into it in great detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess it kind of, to a degree, illustrates how conspiracy theories come about, right? People mm-hmm. are very, humans are very good at seeing patterns where really there's just chaos. Mm-hmm. And, and then building on those patterns to create quite complex systems that mm-hmm. may not actually be that rooted in reality, but uh, mm-hmm. end up being kind of internally um, consistent or self-stabilising. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. texture of the week. <laughs> texture of the week. Um, <laughs> we, 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 de- we, de- we definitely need some kind of radio stab. Oh, see if Mackie wants to do us a little... With, with some texture sounds. Do you have your Velcro? Oh, yeah. Oh, can I? Can I? All yeah. Right. Uh, uh, texture of the week. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, as we were saying before we started recording, we timed this very awkwardly as this book has very few textures um, and the ones it has are mostly not very pleasant. Um, but, yeah, re- related to Paul Blossom. Yeah, um, but I chose um, the the description of the the stairs themselves, um, which is uh, without railings, they rose and fell at alarming angles, forking, occasionally spiralling, rising briefly together, only to veer apart again, crossing over and below one another, connected at rare intervals by thin bridges spanning deep gulfs. Nothing supported them. The glossy white material from which they were made seemed to be strong enough to arch over great distances. Um, yeah, I think there's something quite quite interesting about that. This sort of ultra-strong, thin, glossy white material sort of stretching and arcing and spiralling around. 
Mm. Like, like a film by uh, your least favourite director, Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, my, so my, my texture of the week um, were, was the food pellets, because they taste very richly of meat, but because they're kind of described as like pellets or capsules, I found it really hard to understand or imagine that like like I couldn't picture whether they were like mini cocktail sausages or mm. like those fish oil capsules but with kind of liquid meat inside um mm. or kind of like paracetamol that had a meat flavor um yeah I spent mm. quite a bit of time just trying to work out what what these were like because I, I just couldn't imagine them mm. um and, you know, having been vegetarian for so long, I can no longer imagine meat anyway. So, you know, <laughs> wholly within the realms of the phantasmagorical. <laughs> um, so, yeah. so, yeah, I, I would be quite... Put, I mean, they're all very pleased with this, you know. Apparently they don't... You know, the, the, the food is pretty dire or bland in this dystopia, so they're all quite excited by the meat, but... I think I would have sunked by not having a vegetarian alternative. <laughs> <laughs> That's all they get to eat as well, but I mean, they don't seem to mind. No, no, meat and water. Um, mm. To be toilet, fair, toilet like, water. so, you know, I read some Goodreads reviews of this book, mm. um, and one or two of the reviews so said how, you know, the message of the book was about where we place value and that, you know, the importance of kind of human integrity and valuing uh, these inner aspects of ourselves over petty concerns like food. And I said, well, that's all well and good until you're, you know, actually starving. Mm. Um, to be honest, like, e e even though, you know, we certainly are meant to read Oliver and... Um, Blossom Peter. and Abigail. No, no, no. Uh, oh, we're meant to oh, re read sorry, them. Crit sorry. Yeah, critically. I mean, for you know, ah. for for succumbing and eating the food. Yes. You know, I have to say, you know, reading, I thought, well, you know, I'd, I'd like to think I'd be able to stick it out for quite a while, not succumbing to cruel behaviour. But mm. you know, um, people do underestimate. I think uh, the the power of just those those basic human needs. Yeah, I mean, it's not much of a choice at all, you know. The, um, Which is the whole point, really, of, you know, beyond freedom and dignity, right? That mm. classical conditioning, I think, is is a scary <laughs> uh, approach to human psychology because it's radically anti-free will, essentially. Mm. Uh, it's really depriving humans of choice um, or saying that humans don't have choice, that they're just being conditioned for stimuli so the best way to keep a population in order is to uh you know artificially induce certain behaviors through the use of stimuli um and you know this is a very pe pessimistic view i think of human behavior um but it also does odd things to our understanding of morality because if there is no free will you know are we able to morally condemn one another mm. um but yeah, I mean, you know, I've I've tried. I think it's, it's very easy sometimes to kind of think, oh yes, I'm I'm superior to my basic human needs. Um, mm. But you know, I you know, I've tried going about sleep for a few days, and you know, but after three days, I was basically hallucinating. So <laughs> you 
it, it doesn't yeah. take that long. <laughs> no. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think we, it sort of it struck me that sort of that we're meant to to think of particularly Oliver and Blossom as being very deliberately manipulative and sort of very very clear about you know the that they're deliberately being terrible really oh yeah and when we get a glimpse of their inner lives they're mm. you know written essentially um as having no compassion or empathy for any other human beings whatsoever yeah um you know they they they, they aren't really given a shred of redemptive qualities at all <laughs> yeah um um which i i don't know i kind of thought was interesting because i i mean i i tend to think that that's not really how most people interact with the world <laughs> yeah it, yeah it's more the like the bad behavior is more likely to be of um uh, like not as not as deliberately set out like that you know coming from <clears throat> different psychological and experiential roots and stuff yeah yeah i mean i i tend to feel that most bad behaviour or abusive behaviour comes from ignorance and fear and cognitive dissonance and people justifying unacceptable things to themselves, mm -hmm. um, which at the time seems acceptable to them, otherwise they probably wouldn't do it. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are exceptions, you know. Yeah, there, yeah. There, there are people, clearly, who do revel in being awful and are quite aware of the fact that they're being very cruel and just don't care. Um mm -hmm. And you know, uh, there's the question of of what what behavioural aspects or, or character aspects have been um, taken into consideration when selecting these teenagers as test subjects. Yes, that's true. Um, yes, because they are they were uh, picking people out who they thought might might be. Uh, manipulated into becoming uh, like well, spies, so soldiers, mercenaries, soldiers, spies, something torturers, like that. Um, concentration camp guards, like so st stooges of the government and its yeah. most fascistic impulses. Uh -huh. Yeah, um, and as we say, you know, they're all they're all sixteen, they're all orphans, and also they all have phenomenally good balance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the, the the main twist of this book is that none of them fall off any of these alarming, spiralling staircases and plunge to their death. None of them fall off the toilet, <laughs> <laughs> which is perched in in the middle of like a foot wide bridge or something ridiculous. Yeah, sort of arching, incredibly narrow bridge. Um, <laughs> and they have to. <laughs> Some undetermined uh, amount high up in the air. Um, yeah. yeah. Like, if it's me, me in this book, is just like, day one in the House of Stairs house. <laughs> Adam recoils in disgust at the meaty sausage pellet he's expected to eat, falls over backwards and plummets to his death. 
at the bottom of the stairs. You know, that would be me gone. I wouldn't have an opportunity to test my morality. You know, didn't even make it to the toilet. <laughs> no, exactly. <yeah. laughs> so you know, however, however awful the behaviour of some of these characters is, you know, they've got to be commended for their balance at least. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Because, yeah, be- better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, chosen for their suspect morality and incredible parkour skills. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, that's a book I want to read. You know, <laughs> the morally compromised parkour runners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, any any final thoughts on the book? Um, well, we didn't quite get into the sort of queer subtext. No, I mean, it's not. It, there's not much there. But no, I mean, I guess it mostly centres on Peter. So you can make an argument for the character of Lola as well, I suppose. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, I want to because. <laughs> <laughs> I want to find queer women and, and things. Um, I mean, there's no evidence, but just that she's tomboyish and um, and Peter mistakes her for a boy at first and uh, all of his charms don't work on her. Um, she she has a certain vibe. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And, it, 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 you know, it's nice that the two most heroic characters, the characters who have the greatest inner strength and dignity are characters who are subtly coded as queer. Yeah. Yeah. But the less said about Blossom, the, the better, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's probably all I've really written down about this. Well, uh, you, you haven't heard my sign-off yet. Oh, gosh, no, I haven't. Because after last week's humiliating debacle, um, <laughs> I, I decided to prepare one in advance. Oh, uh, yes. So, yeah, so, so, listen to this. Keep, keep it starey, spooky <laughs> kids. Oh, wow, Adam. Oh, yeah. you've outdone yourself. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, it makes it all worthwhile yeah Um. life (laughs) so if you want to keep it starey with us on twitter um, we're uh, at stillscaredpod Um, or you can email us at stillscaredpodcast at gmail.com our theme music is by Maki Yamazaki our outro music is by Jay Kelly and our artwork is by Letty Wilson and I'll put all of that in the show notes as usual and I'll see you next time for I don't know what. Yeah. What we haven't got that far. Knife to eyeball. Yeah. (laughs) We'll we'll see. We'll see. All right. See you then. Bye.